Well, listen, Carla, tonight uh, I'm going to do my best not to wake up in the middle of the night and accidentally see you with whatever crazy <laughs> thing you have going on and wait till you're perfectly uh, ready to go in the morning. I mean, I would appreciate that because it's, you know, this is so lovely and put together right now with all of the pounds of makeup and, you know, the hours and hours that I spent on this ponytail that you see. There's a lot that went into this. So yeah, here's to hoping you don't ever see the ogre that comes out (laughs) in the middle of the night because, yeah, you know, got to cover that, got to cover that right on up. Well, there are a lot of lessons that I learned from this show. That's definitely (laughs) one of them. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode where we are diving into the mind of Amy Sherman Palladino, who is the creator behind The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So we're going to be talking about the pilot episode today. Robert, how are you feeling about this? Are you super stoked? I'm excited. This has been a fun program for me. I learned a lot. For instance, I learned that every night you go to bed and like do some crazy routine after I've fallen asleep and then undo that routine in the morning before I wake up. I must say that you don't have the same success in the morning that Midge Maisel seems to. So, oh, damn. That's where we're headed. That's, yeah, that's I, the situation that we're in. Okay. This might be an awkward episode. Okay. I see what's happening. Uh, for those of you who do not remember what we're talking about, because we are covering the pilot episode today, uh, there's this wonderful, hilarious scene where we see Midge going to bed. As we often see in TV shows, people like looking perfect, not like you know, wearing comfy pajamas, but she's like wearing this fancy gown, her makeup's all done, her hair's perfect. And then as soon as her husband falls asleep, she wakes up, or not wakes up, she gets up. She has never actually fallen asleep. Goes and like puts her hair in curlers, puts cold cream all over her face, peels off her fake eyelashes, and then goes and crawls back in bed. She looked hideous. (laughs) And then before he wakes up in the morning, she goes and like does the whole thing in reverse. And when he wakes up, he sees perfectly quaffed uh, Midge instead of what she actually looks like at night. So it's just hilarious to me. I wonder, like, one, how many people did this in the 50s when the show was set? And two, how many people are still doing this today? Because holy cow. Also, it just seems crazy unrealistic to me that, like, no one ever wakes up in the middle of the night. They have children. Like, no one's getting up in the middle of the night to deal with kids or, you know going to the bathroom, waking up to get a glass of water. This would work a lot better before the invention of the electric light bulb. Uh, Yes. Yeah, I don't think this is something that somebody could pull off for more than like a few nights if getting lucky with it. But apparently she's been doing this for four years and he's none the wiser. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's pretty impressive that she goes with less sleep than him every single night. Yeah, I mean, quite a bit. It takes a long time to do your hair and makeup and undo it all. Yeah, that's... It's a commitment. She's committed to being the perfect housewife. Well, it's a good show. I like it a lot. As you know, I'm a big fan of Amy Sherman Palladino. We've done episodes before on the Gilmore Girls. and Not enough. More are coming. Don't you worry, guys. I'm a fan. I like it. So this (laughs) is more of her work, and I was happy to watch it. Yeah, it really does show the similarities between all of her work. So her main things that she's done have been Gilmore Girls, the TV show Bunheads, which criminally only got one episode. It was so good. One season. Uh, yeah, one season, sorry. Um, and then The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has just been crushing it. Everyone loves this program. So yeah, they all share that same super fast, snappy, witty dialogue. And it really shines in this period piece of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Agreed. Yeah, I think uh, Rachel Brosnahan, who plays the main character, uh, Miriam or Midge Maisel, She's won a couple of Emmys, right? Yeah, she sure has. So this is my favorite fun fact about the show. So Alex Borstein plays um, Midge's agent named Susie in the show. And Alex Borstein was Amy Sherman Palladino's first choice to play Suki St. James in Gilmore Girls many, many moons ago. And it just didn't work out. I think they had scheduling conflicts. Melissa McCarthy ended up with that role. And I had, I mean... She turned out to be Melissa McCarthy, so the world was better. Everything was great. 
But I'm sure that Alex Borstein was always bummed that she didn't get to have that incredible role. But man, she's really like gotten her due in this show. She's the perfect fit for playing Susie. And she has won two Emmys for her role as Susie. So the show has gotten a lot of acclaim and it's more than deserved. Well, I love it because Tony Shalhoub is in there and yeah. uh, he's always been a favorite of mine. Yeah, he's pretty great. Um, the woman who plays Midge's mother in the series, her name is Marin Hinkle. Uh, she also does a fabulous job. I mean, they just have like a perfect cast. Everyone is so well suited to their roles. It's a rare thing to find in a TV show. Well, I don't know if they're all perfectly suited for the roles. So the program centers around a couple of Jewish families, right? And one of the things I read is that the whole Maisel family with the husband, Joel, and his parents, and his parents don't actually show up in the pilot episode. They're introduced in later episodes, but become a really central part of the show. Yeah. The actors who play all of the Maisel folks are actually Jewish, whereas the actors who play the um, Wiseman's, uh, Midge's family, her parents and herself, None of them are actually Jewish, so I don't know if they were all perfect for these roles, but they do a darn good job of, you know, pretending. They do a very good job. I suppose that's what acting is. I suppose so. So um, we are planning soon to do an episode on My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and we watched these two things like in close succession back to back. Both of us were convinced that the lady who plays, and I think her name is Thea, yeah, this is like Vula or something like that. Maybe that, I feel like they call her Tia. I don't. Maybe that's like because Tia is the Spanish word for aunt. Maybe Tia is the Greek word for aunt. I don't know. In any event, uh, it's the lady who uh, talks about having the bibopsy and <laughs> um, eating her twin in the womb. I'm sure people remember her as that. But yeah, that lady looks so similar to the woman who plays Midge's mother in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We were just like a hundred percent certain it was the same human being and nope, not even related, like no (laughs) overlap there whatsoever. It is definitely not the same woman, but gosh, do they look similar? I was quite certain that it was the same person and the folks on the internet also had the same challenges. Yeah. There's a, didn't you tell me there's like a whole subreddit dedicated to the overlap, just how similar those two (laughs) women look. That's pretty wild. There's a lot of rabbit holes out there to go deep in. That's true. That's so true. So um, this whole series, which we have watched in the past, has a lot, a lot of really good money content. I think that's another thing that Amy Sherman Palladino likes to do is just put lots of money stuff in her shows because Gilmore Girls has a lot as well. Um, Today, we are going to be focusing just on the pilot episode of Maisel, and hopefully we can do some other episodes down the road because, my goodness, there's a lot to learn from this show. So I think we can do just a very brief overview of the plot of the pilot episode if you haven't seen it in a while. Also, if you've never seen it, run to your nearest television and check this show out because it is just supremely well done. Um, But in the pilot episode, we are introduced to the character of Midge Maisel. This show is set in 1958, and she is kind of your prototypical, perfect 1950s housewife married with two kids. They're very, very upper class. They live on the Upper West Side of New York. And Miriam's husband, Miriam slash Midge, is married to Joel. And he sort of surprises her and leaves her in this episode, kind of coming totally out of the blue as far as Midge is concerned. Um, Joel has aspirations to become a stand-up comic. And that has not been going super well for poor old Joel. Um, He's terrible. And when Joel leaves Midge, she ends up kind of stumbling into this situation where she has a chance to do stand-up comedy, and she crushes it. She just has this natural wit and humor about her that makes her very well-suited for the stage. And she is spotted by Susie, played by Alex Borstein, um, who tries to convince her to become a stand-up comic, that she's really got the goods. So that's the plot in a nutshell. Did I leave anything critical out? I think you got the main points across. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive into clip number one. Let me set the scene for this a little bit. So Joel has been doing these comedy shows at night, um, and Miriam is talking to her mother, who doesn't really understand what's going on with this whole comedy thing and why they're doing it. How did Joel's little show go? It went very well. I still don't understand this whole thing. 
Who is he performing for? Anyone who shows up. And they pay you? Well, they pass around a basket at the end of your set, and whatever's in it, you get to take home. If you need money, we can give you money. No, we don't need money. Joel is funny, and he likes to do his comedy. But how long are you going to be doing this, running around at night, taking money from strangers like a snorer? As long as it's fun. Okay, so first I have to make a little clarification here, because I did not know this word. The word she says there that you might not have heard is schnorrer. S-C-H-N-O-R-R-E-R. -R -R -E is that one who makes loud sounds when they sleep? <laughs> it is not. Uh, it's like a beggar or like kind of a uh, layabout. That is how the internet defines it. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. So lots to talk about from this brief little clip here. Yeah. So the mother has this idea that like they're spending their time doing this thing because they need the money, which is just kind of unfortunate, right? I, f I feel like there are so many things that we do. We live in a wonderful era where we all have lots of leisure time, or at least a little bit of leisure time. Yeah, it depends heavily on what you do for work. <laughs> yeah. But surely everyone has some downtime, and you don't have to spend that downtime 100% in productive pursuits, right? Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And the reality is most people don't. Most people spend their leisure time watching television, which... We certainly do. That's a productive pursuit, Carla. <laughs> it is. We figured out a way to turn it into something productive. Um, yeah, most people spend it just kind of lounging about, scrolling on their phones. But it's great when you can find a leisure pursuit that actually like requires something out of you, right? Because it's it feels so good when you put something out into the world. You're being creative. You're being literally productive, right? So I think that feels good when you can do that on your own terms without having somebody stand over you and tell you as a job, you must do this and this and this. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that uh, Rose doesn't seem to quite get it. I mean, would she tell a child who was playing basketball as soon as it was clear that they didn't have a, the right makeup to make it in a professional atmosphere that they should give it up? Because, you know, how long are you going to be doing this? And People want to come see you? Like, what the heck? Yeah, I think she's not hip to the fact that it feels really good to do things that are active and creative without worrying about whether you're going to make money off of it. Yeah, I, you should do the things you love and you don't have to do them as a job, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the other thing I think this clip brings up is how much money can you make as a stand-up comic? So well, if you're Joel, like <laughs> negative money. Yeah, he is really not good at, at this, as we see in the show. Right? Doesn't he make Midge make a brisket or some sort of dish to take to the person who assigns time slots that's open mic night so that he can at least get a time? Yeah, they're literally bribing the nightclub with brisket to get Joel a time slot every night. Um, so, yeah, it's clearly not going great for him. But for someone who is maybe a little bit better than Joel Maisel... Um, you can make a little bit of money being a stand-up comic, right? This is a thing that people do actually get paid for. It's really, really tough, though. So when you're just starting out, you're going to be going to open mics and doing this for free, right? Just like we see Joel doing in the show. I imagine sometimes you have to pay even to, to do open mic nights. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case at some nightclubs. They know that you know people who are hungry for that time are willing to do whatever it takes to get it in some cases. Um, but you can also get money put into your pocket. So I've sleuthed around on the internet a little bit because I don't have any experience as a stand-up comic. Um, oh, we know, Carla. We can tell. <laughs> so what I found is that to be an opening act for somebody in like a standard nightclub scenario, you can expect to be paid somewhere from $25 to $50 for your time. So not a great return. Um, if you are like a quote middle act, you're you know going kind of in a more desirable time slot, you can get maybe $50 to $100. And then if you are a headliner, you can expect to get anywhere from like $100 to $200 for your time. So... That's actually better than I would have guessed. Yeah. So I did a little number crunching on this. So let's take the middle of the road, $100 to $200, let's call it $150. If you're able to make $150 and you're doing that three nights a week... For 50 weeks out of the year, which is a lot, but basically if this is your full-time job, that would come out to $22,500 over the course of a year. So it's really tough to scrape by on that. Yeah, and it's you're not going to be able to get booked that often. There's no way, right? Yeah, I agree. So I was giving somebody like 
the ultimate benefit of the doubt, figuring they could book Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights every single week, barring two weeks out of the year. So that is extremely, extremely generous. But I will say, if this is something you really enjoy and are willing to put a lot of time into it to, you know, write the jokes and perfect your act, that's not a bad little side hustle to have, right? But it's probably not enough to like put food on the table and completely cover all of your expenses for the year. Yeah. If you're not touring somewhere, I don't think you're making enough money to pull it off, right? Yeah. I think that's probably a fair way to look at it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a tough gig to, to pull off. Now, obviously there are people who are wildly successful as comedians. So I thought this would be a fun fact. Can you guess who is the most successful comedian of all time? Of all time? Hmm. Monetarily, I mean. Gosh. I mean, there were some people who were in Vegas who had like installations. Wasn't there like a like a puppet guy? Jeff Dunham. That's my guess. Uh, no, but actually we have seen Terry Fader when we went uh, to Vegas with a friend many years ago. He is way up there on the list of like the world's richest comedians. No, you're going to kick yourself when you hear this. Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he has like $950 million of net worth. But okay, I see the face you're making like, does that even count? And I totally agree. But I think that's the thing. If you're really, really great at stand-up comedy, you're eventually going to get like roped into doing other things, right? You're going to get into acting, possibly have a TV show. It's obviously what made Jerry Seinfeld so famous and wealthy. So I think you changed the rules on me. This felt like a bait and switch. <laughs> I thought you were asking me who had made the most basically performing live doing comedy. Yeah, I mean that's a hard. Do you hard, know that answer? I don't have an answer for that. The internet doesn't seem to surely give me an I'm answer. right. Surely, Terry Fader was really high on that list. And um, there's also people like Jeff Foxworthy, yeah, who I, I associate more with being like pure stand-up. Although, didn't he? Have, well, he was on Who Wants to Be or Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? There we go. Yeah, Who Wants to Be a Fifth Grade Millionaire? <laughs> yeah. Is that where you going? <laughs> that was what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think he he might have also had a a TV show too. I don't remember. Yeah, that kind of feels right vaguely somewhere in the back of my brain, but, but I don't know. You make a good point. People who have been successful stand-up comedians often get the opportunity to go try their hand at running successful TV shows, too. Yeah, I mean, Amy Schumer is a great example of that. She came up as a stand-up comic. So many people who like really made it in the world of TV and movies started as stand-up comics. So that's obviously the dream. Like Adam Sandler, he's on the lists that I was looking at as well. He started out as a stand-up. So yeah, it can be a path to great wealth and riches, but only in a small percentage of cases. <laughs> yeah, most people I think are doing it after their their day shift. So one other question about this clip that we had, Rose is very condescending about this whole thing, right? In fact, she uses the word a little, so she's asked, how did Joel's little show go? It drives me so crazy when parents do that to their kids. How's your little friend? How's your little girlfriend? Like, it's just so demeaning. You know, children are real people. It, it all feels very real and important to them. Well, maybe they are little. I don't know. <laughs> and even Joel and Midge are like in their mid-20s, so little show doesn't really seem maybe like there a was nice a, thing to a say. Maybe there was a big show coming, and this was sort of like a, a, a way to characterize which yeah. one she was referring to? No, I don't think so. Yeah, there definitely wasn't a big show ever coming for Joel. He's freaking <laughs> <Yeah>. terrible. <laughs> so... Condescension is pretty heavy. Um, she also seems like kind of concerned about this, which I think is a common way for parents to feel when they have a kid who really wants to pursue some kind of risky sort of dream career, like being a stand-up actor, writer, whatever it might be. So what are your thoughts on how a parent should handle that situation? Well, based on my decades of parenting and <laughs> dozens of children I've helped raised, I'm sure I've got good perspective here. Let's hear it. <laughs> so I think if you're a parent, what you have to do is analyze the amount that's really being invested and what the trade-offs are, right? These things have value beyond the obvious expectation, right? The idea of becoming a stand-up stand comedian leading to some sort of successful career that will change the fame and fortune of your family. You think of that as the primary output of this exercise. And you know that that is hopelessly impossible and is not going to happen for the vast majority of people. But there are a whole bunch of other benefits, right? You become a better public speaker. You gain confidence. You're, 
you might be more fun. You, you become a better writer. Maybe you identify that you have some other talent that you're more likely to be successful at and could go leverage somewhere else in your life. There are a whole bunch of dividends that can get paid from doing an activity like this. The question is, what are the trade-offs and the costs, right? Are you spending $2,000 a month with a coach who's supposed to be helping you get better at this thing that you're never going to get particularly good at? If so, that's kind of a big deal and a problem. If you're spending a couple of hours of your free time preparing for this and getting better, is that really such a big trade-off? I don't know. I think as a parent, if it's not costing you a whole lot, uh, if it's not costing the kid a whole lot, including opportunity costs, then go for it. There's a lot of value to be had there. Yeah. I mean, the thing that people tend to say in this context is make sure you have a backup plan, um, which I think is good, solid advice. It just can be so discouraging to somebody who wants to like throw themselves into pursuing some kind of passionate career and, you know, just like put all their marbles in one bag. Is that that metaphor? I don't know. In any event, all their eggs in one basket, whatever you want to say. Um, but it is a scary thing for parents. And I think, you know, as we've gotten older and we're, we don't have kids, but we're like parent age as opposed to kid age, Like you are the backup plan as the parent, right? (laughs) Which is kind of a cruddy thing to to feel in life. So I think uh, it's certainly understandable why parents would want to, you know, urge kids to have some kind of a backup plan. I think it is generally pretty solid advice, but you don't want to be discouraging, right? Because you just never know which of the, you know, like if you're looking at an elementary class full of kids you have no way of knowing which one of them is going to try and try and try and still end up failing at the end and which one of them is really going to hit it big. So, or hit it medium and have a fulfilling career that, you know, maybe you're not world famous or even locally famous, but you're having a lot of fun and you're able to make ends meet. So it's a balance, I think, between reality and encouragement. Well, and the opportunity costs when you're an elementary school kid or a middle, middle school kid are pretty tiny. If Joel were to quit his job and try to become a full-time comedian, a parent here uh, would probably have a good good perspective to say, Joel, it doesn't look like you have the talent to be successful. Maybe you ought to do this as a hobby and not as a profession because it's not going to work. right? I, I think it's, it's really a question of the probability of success. And the older you are, the more developed you are, the closer you are to the deadline for when you actually have to be able to go use these skills for something productive, that's when it's time to get a little bit more harsh with the reality. Yeah. Well, so no matter what age you are, if you are wanting to pursue a career like this, you've got to polish your skills and you've got to practice a lot, right? So let's listen to a conversation between Joel and Midge as she learns that maybe he hasn't been practicing quite the way that she thought. Joel. You're not going to believe this. Bob Newhart is doing your act. What? Bob Newhart. He's on Ed Sullivan. He's doing your act. He must have come to the club one night and seen you perform, and and now he's on television doing it just like you do. Well, it's a little bit different because he does it faster, which is better, actually, but that's besides the point. I'm mad. Aren't you mad? Midge, relax. You're not mad? No. Or stunned? Not even mildly bemused? It's his act. What? Are you gonna put the rest of this on a platter? How is it his act? How do you know his act? I've got his record. So you stole Bob Newhart's act? It's fine, everybody does it. Everybody steals his act? Yes. No, not steals, borrows. No big deal. It's not? When I found out June Friedman used my meatloaf recipe, I almost stabbed her in the eye with a fork. Everybody in comedy steals Borrows. Borrows everybody else's jokes, especially at the beginning. Bob Newhart probably used Henny Youngman's stuff when he started. That's how it's done. Oh. Well, if that's how it's done. It is. I yay yay. So, very 1950s, how trusting Midge is of her husband, right? Like, I just think it's so, it, honestly, it's a little bit sweet that at the very beginning, she just has absolutely no doubt in her mind whatsoever that Bob Newhart has stolen from her husband instead of the other way around. Uh, I guess she had a lot of faith in him, which turns out to be unwarranted. But uh, yeah, not not exactly what she expected. Turns out that everything Joel has been performing 
that she's ever heard has been stolen from some other comedian. Yeah, Bob Newhart stuff, but worse. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> not even doing it right, as we hear Mitch say. G- got to do it faster the way Amy Sherman Palladino would have liked it. <laughs> Everything is fast in uh, Amy Sherman Palladino's world. So I think this is an interesting topic of using other people's work when you're just starting out and you're trying to like learn how to do a particular craft. So I've always been a fan of the author David Foster Wallace since I discovered him in, I don't know, like the early 2000s. And I read in an interview once that he recommends for young writers that they literally sit down and type out word for word like a book that they really admire, some classic book that they think is great. And that by going through that process, they will understand much more deeply what it took to create that piece of art and will be better prepared to then go and create their own stuff. I think this is very true in like the, you know, drawing and painting arena, right? You see art students at museums copying the works of the masters, trying to learn and understand how they did it. Um, There are, you know, a musical instrument, like very few songwriters sit down and just start writing a song when they're first learning an instrument, right? They learn what other people have done. So it is very common and I think very good advice for someone who's trying to learn a new craft to stand on the shoulders of others, practice what they have done, and then branch out and do their own stuff. But I, I mean, comedy is different. So What are your thoughts on this, Robert? Oh, yeah. You can totally learn from other people and mimic what they do. Um, It just depends on the avenue which you're trying to do it. If you're going to be a stand-up comedian, um, is reciting the jokes in front of people the hard part? I really don't think so. It's writing the material that the audience is going to engage with and sharing somebody else's stuff. Like, What's the point of that if you're not an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old goofing off in front of your family and friends? Right. Like that totally makes sense. And it, it's real there to, to do that. And I would imagine if you're starting really young, replicating exactly what somebody else is doing and trying to get the comedic timing down and trying to memorize something which may be complicated for you at that age is a worthwhile activity. But if you're Joel's age, he's in, in his mid 20s, uh, at, at least he might be even older than that. I don't know for sure. What are you doing? He's trying to do real shows in front of real people like I what is the value of that? It's just like public speaking. He's he's trying to act when he's supposed to be being a comedian. Yeah. I mean, so the thing that's obviously different about stand-up comedy versus all those other kinds of arts that I was describing is that stand-up comedy, by definition, has to be done in public, right? It's not much good for you to practice in front of your mirror ad nauseum. Eventually, you got to get up in front of an audience and get that feedback to figure out whether you're actually any good at this or not. But isn't the thing you're trying to find out if you're any good at is writing jokes, not delivering somebody else's, but actually writing them? I mean, I think it's both, right? You have to be really good at writing the material, but you also have to be really good at the delivery. So like, okay, so one of my favorite comedians is Tig Notaro. I feel very confident that you could give me like her best material, have me read it in front of an audience word for word, doing my darndest, and I wouldn't get nearly as many laughs as she does because I'm not Tig Notaro. I don't have that hilarious sense of timing and sarcasm that she has. So yeah, I think delivery is a huge part of being a comedian. And I get that he's getting some value out of practicing that. But ultimately, it is pretty pointless if he can't write a joke. And we learn later in the episode that he's never written a joke. (laughs) Like he's made no attempt at putting pen to paper, apparently unless it was to, you know, sit down and like transcribe what somebody else had done. So that is egregious. Yeah, I think his problem here is that he's practicing the wrong thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I could maybe get him a pass if he did it like once, but apparently they've been doing this for months and months and he's still doing someone else's act. Yeah, and I don't mean to like belittle that kind of approach. I think there are other avenues, there are other things you might be going after in life where this would make sense. If you want to be a singer-songwriter go to karaoke, sing in a church choir. I don't know, like singing somebody else's music, even if your goal is to eventually sing your own music is actually productive because finding out how to perform in front of people and making sure that your voice is one that people actually enjoy 
seems important. By the way, that's the whole plot of the movie Coyote Ugly. That's like the whole plot. <laughs> All right. I guess this is a combo episode. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think there are things like that. I think, you know, there's little kids who watch the modern NBA player and decide they want to be just like him, right? I mean, I'm sure back in the day, people were trying to replicate Kareem's skyhook in their backyards playing with each other. And kids today are, are doing Steph Curry's super long distance three-pointers. And they want to be able to do that. And if they're if they are able to do that, it will translate into some degree of success for them. But if you're going to be a stand-up comedian, I think that like there are tons of people who can deliver material. It's just acting. It's it's literally just acting, right? Yeah, that's fair. Which is why there's such a crossover between stand-up comedians and actors. But... Well, no, because they're not stealing other people's material oh, normally. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So what you would be doing, what Joel is doing, is literally memorizing some lines and trying to deliver them in a way that you know lives up to the audience's expectations. But real success in that circuit requires the the brilliance and the creativity and the ability to to just share something new with the audience that you've made yourself. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You've got to be original. You've got to be creative. And if you are Joel Maisel and you don't even attempt to do that, there's no point. Like you're literally just wasting everyone's time going to these comedy clubs. <laughs> I do love the part in the pilot where he kind of halfway attempts to make a joke about the moth that ate his sweater and it was a joke that Midge like offhand made in the cab on the way over and he butchers it and it's terrible and the whole set is just <laughs> brutally terrible and it's clear that he just doesn't have what it takes. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue into our next clip because that night where he bombs after telling the moth joke, um, he is just like in a tirade. He's decides he's going to leave Midge and they're having this huge argument and he's telling her, just how unhappy he's been in a lot of different areas of his life. Joel, come on, you, you have a job. Yeah, but comedy was a dream. Do you know what a dream is? A dream is what keeps you going in a job you hate. Since when do you hate your job? Do you know what I do, Mitch? You're the vice president No, of... no, no, no. Do you know what I do every day? Day in and day out, what the actual physical machinations of my job are? No. Neither do I. I take meetings. I make phone calls, I shuffle paper around, and I have no idea what the hell I actually do. Maybe if you did, you'd like it more. Dang, that's harsh. So, Carla, do you know what I actually do all day? <laughs> I think maybe I have at least a... Well, hopefully you have a better idea than I have Joel a better does. idea than Joel does, that's for sure. I think I have a little bit of a better understanding than Midge does, but my favorite joke to make to you all the time is that you, your job is to talk on the phone. Like, you get paid to talk on the phone, much like a sex phone operator. I, basically, I am a <laughs> sex worker. So, yeah, you are on the phone constantly. What, I mean, I'm I'm joking, but it is a very real thing. Like, a huge part of my old job used to be to talk on the phone. So, people get paid to talk on the phone. It is a very common thing. Obviously, you have to do prep work to be, like, ready for these calls and have a lot of knowledge about what's going on in the business in order to be like an intelligent participant in these calls. You can't just show up and be like ready to, you know, shoot the shit guys. Um, but yeah, it's a big part of what you do is to talk on the phone, but yes, you are an energy engineer, I guess would be the title. Um, I don't know. Do I need to go into all the details for these poor people on the podcast? No, I just wanted to know, like, if if you if you were in the same position as Midge, if you actually knew what I did, or you know, I, I am not in the same position as Joel. I understand the purpose of what I do. I, I think it <laughs> provides value. I hope it does. It's certainly my objective for it too. I don't just meander from meeting to meeting and take appointments and um, whatever he's doing. Wonder what it's all for. <laughs> yeah, I, that does sound like a very bleak situation. I will say knowing the character of Joel and how he doesn't seem to really throw himself into anything in life, being a dad, being a husband, stand-up comedy, his job, like none of the pursuits that we know him for does he like get excited about and really get into. Well, so going outside the pilot, he does do a good job or getting enthusiastic about opening up that, that club he does later. That's true. That's many, many seasons down He's the road. He's matured, huh? Yeah. Um, at this point, he seems to have no like get up and go in life about any of his many roles that he has. So I do think he bears a lot of the responsibility probably for the malaise that he's feeling at work because he's not like taking the time to really pick his head up, look around and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to figure out what the heck's going on around here so that I can feel better about it. 
So when I heard this clip the first time, it made me think of a book that you told me about called Bullshit Jobs. I've not read it. You have. Did you feel the same way? Uh, yeah, this clip definitely makes me think of that book. So the book is by a guy named David Graeber. I was recently on an episode of um, Doug and Carl's podcast, The Mile High Fi Show, and Doug and I talked about this book because it's really fascinating. So you should check out that episode where we go into a lot more detail about like the different categories of bullshit jobs. But one of the things he talks about in that book is one that like over 50% of the jobs in America are what he would call bullshit. And more importantly, what the people who actually hold those jobs would call bullshit. Like people are coming and self-reporting to him and saying, no, my job is total BS. I don't actually do anything productive for society. The world would be a better place if my job were eliminated. Um, so I think... I don't know if it's over 50%. I actually think that's that's pretty high. But I do know that there are a lot of jobs out there that are just kind of created to check a box or to like make other people feel good about themselves, um, but they don't provide a lot of real value to the world. So I think Joel is struggling with that very thing. You know, he just doesn't feel like his job has any real purpose. I do think that Joel could maybe try a little bit harder to to like find some purpose in his work. I don't know, we don't really get very much insight into what he does other than the fact that his secretary's name is Penny Pan. And she, she doesn't know how to sharpen pencils? Or put her shirts on so they're not inside out. <laughs> well, she may be putting those shirts on in a hurry because... Uh... There's a little Hank to the pink going on between Joel <laughs> and Penny Pan. Uh, yeah, it's who knows what's going on at Joel's office, but... It is a very common thing for people to feel like their job is BS. So I sympathize with Joel feeling that way. It's not fun to feel like what you're doing is purposeless or actively harmful to the world, which is one category of jobs that the Bullshit Jobs book by David Graeber talks about. Um, so I sympathize with him, but I do think in his particular case, he could put in like a smidge more efforts. <laughs> yeah, I think that would help out. Well, he characterizes uh, comedy as his dream, right? And it's the dream that keeps him through, that gets him through the difficult days at this job that he hates. Um, a lot of people have jobs that they don't love. It's an unfortunate reality. Not everyone can be as lucky as I am. And I get it. But should you expect your job to be everything in your life? So I think this gets into the debate of whether you should chase your passion to bring in a paycheck or just work some like normal job that you don't actively hate and just use that to fund your free time so that you can chase your passions then. I see merit to both sides of that argument. I think one of the strongest arguments for not trying to chase your passion um, as a way to make a living is that it can actually suck the joy out of that passion, right? I think that's a very real concern. And a lot of people who go that route end up finding that, you know, they love to sit down and play the piano for an hour every night, but when they're made to do it for like six hours on end at a, at a nightclub or something, it gets a lot more tedious and they lose the fun of it. So it's a very common concern and I think that has merit. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are just like, gotta chase those dollar bills, that's all that matters in life and you can have fun in your free time, don't worry about whether you're happy at work. And that leads to a lot of misery as well, right? So I think there's some kind of sweet spot in the middle there where you really enjoy your work, but it's not absolutely everything to you, right? You have a life outside of it and other things that you enjoy. I mean, if you want to play it that way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Midge did not know that he hated his job. She didn't even know that he was trying to make it as a full-time professional stand-up comedian. Yeah, that's one of the things that comes up in this argument is he's like, I'm never going to make it as a stand-up comic. And she's like, duh. Did you want to? <laughs> what are you talking really? about? Yeah. and then <laughs> I thought this was our hobby together. Yeah, she thinks this is like golfing for them. You know, it's just their fun thing that they do as a couple. And for Joel, it was very serious. So I think the lesson there is, my gosh, it is so important to make sure that you and your spouse are on the same page about how everything's going to work. Are you feeling it? Or are you not? Do we need to be like cutting back our lifestyle so that you can downshift and find another job? 
that you like more. I mean, these are very important things. Like Joel hating his job is a critical piece of information, right? Because we see Midge spending it up like crazy, just a tiny bit in this first episode. And then later on in the series, we get the full picture of just how out of control her spending is. Um, but yeah, like she should not be doing that if her source of income, she doesn't work. Joel is the only one bringing in income. If that is precarious, they need to cut way the hell back. Yeah, it's ridiculous that they aren't communicating about this sort of thing, but it's the 1950s. And sadly, I think it was probably pretty common. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't even know what she looks like when she's not in full makeup. So <laughs> obviously, they're not uh, they're not exactly best friends. That's the my take on it. Yeah, that's, it's unfortunate that their communication isn't so great. Um, he didn't tell her he was having an affair either. I mean, gosh, they're not talking about anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess he told her in the end. Um, Okay, well, let's jump ahead to our final clip here where Midge has kind of had a little mini breakdown and as a very positive side effect of that breakdown, she ends up performing some stand-up comedy um, at the club where Joel normally performs and discovers that she actually has a talent for it. So Susie, who works at this nightclub, sees her performing and this is a conversation they have a little bit later. I don't understand. You should do stand-up, and I can help you. Oh, come on. I'm serious. I am a mother. Great. We'll use that. One of your kids do something weird? Tonight was an isolated incident. There are medications I can take to make sure that never happens again. Look, 15 years I've been working in clubs, okay? 15 years of watching every kind of loser get up there thinking he's Jack Benny. Twice have I seen someone deliver the goods. First time, guy walks in, West Coast, suntan, arrogant, pain in the ass. Three words into his act, I fucking knew it. I turned to Baz and I said, that guy's gonna be famous. Who was he? Mort Saul. Well, he's good. We saw him at Grossinger's last year. Yeah, well, the second time was tonight. Stop it. I know I'm right about this. Like I know that unless I somehow get rich enough to hire some German broad to walk me around the park twice a day in my old age, I'm gonna spend my entire life alone. That's not true. It's fine. I don't mind being alone. I just do not want to be insignificant. Do you? Such good acting. Such yep. yeah. Man, it's really a great show. Everyone go watch this show. <laughs> so Susie is offering to be Midge's agent. Susie the I guess, bartender or not. I guess she's not a bartender. She's like a club something. I don't know exactly what she does. She's, yeah, some sort of role at the nightclub called the Gaslight. I don't know. It's very unclear what her existing role is. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. She's not the manager. No, definitely not. She's not the booker. Yeah. Some kind of bartender. I don't know. This is a mystery we're going to get to the bottom of. She's not handing out drinks to people like in the club. I don't know what she's doing. Yeah, very unclear. In any event, she wants to be a manager of talent, right? That's what she's proposing to Midge here. So I think that raises a question. One, should Midge be like wary in this situation? If someone approaches you and said, hey, I'm, I want to be your talent agent. Let me represent you. Should you be wary? What do you think? Well, you should ask some questions. That's yeah. for darn sure. Like what kind of arrangement are we talking about? Um I mean, if if you don't have any particular aspirations yourself of becoming a comedian, which is which is the case for Midge here, right? That's not anything she's ever expressed a desire to do. It's not as though she might be signing up with the agent that's not going to help her get to her dreams, right? She doesn't have any dreams in this area. So, like, there's not any lost cost there, Um as long as the agent isn't asking you to pay them in order to do this service for you and instead is asking to take a, like a commission-based approach where they sign you up, they give you the opportunity to perform and take a cut based of, uh, on your earnings, uh, you know, as long as it's that kind of a model, I don't know that she should be too nervous. Maybe she should be worried that Susie has no agent experience, which you know, she should ask about that. But at the same time, like I said, this isn't something she's been dreaming about for years. This is something that Susie brought to her. Yeah, I very much agree. I think generally speaking, if somebody has this kind of conversation with you, you should be flattered and excited and, you know, be willing to move forward if that's something that you're interested in. The 
agent model is generally a pretty good one. Your interests are, are quite aligned, right? The agent doesn't make money unless you make money. So if, as long as you've got that kind of a, you know, like a percentage-based model, which I think is pretty standard, then yeah, you guys should be on the same page and have a fruitful and happy relationship. So I looked this up. Apparently, it's pretty typical for a comedian's agent to charge somewhere in the range of like 15 to 20%. Yeah, I saw that as well. And my first instinct was, man, that seems pretty high. But at the same time, they do a lot of work, right? It's not like being an agent for some other roles or, you know, things that need an agent um, where maybe you're getting booked for multiple things in a row or, you know, the amount of time that you're spending doing something is, is longer how long is your comedy set, right? It's a lot of work to get you booked for each one of those things. And so they need a little bit more money. And if you're touring, um, it's a lot of work to go get that figured out and, and planned and put together. So I, I think it seems pretty fair. Yeah, it doesn't strike me as totally outrageous for all the reasons you just outlined. So yeah, I think Mitch should be pretty excited in this scenario. Um, and I, The kinds of situations where alarm bells are going off when some kind of talent scout approaches you are exactly what you said, right? When they're looking for you to give them something, then you should be worried. But that's certainly not what Susie is proposing here at all. Um, And of course, they go on to have a really great friendship and get along super well as as agent and comedian for the most part. Yeah. Susie doesn't come there and say, I need $2,000 to take some headshots of you so that we can go distribute those. That might be a warning sign. Yeah, that is definitely a red flag. (laughs) So... The other major thing I think to talk about from this clip is Susie's point at the end that she doesn't care about being alone. She just doesn't want to be insignificant, which uh, is kind of a powerful thing to say. And I'm curious what your take on it is. What do you think it means to be insignificant in this world? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a deep question, Carla. It is, I know. So I would say that you're, well, one, her talk about loneliness and insignificance is is interesting because I think they're they're rather connected. We probably have a pretty surface level thought about being significant, right? Well, I learned about you in history class. I saw you on TV. You're famous. You're somebody that I know. You're someone who um, has has stuck around the public consciousness enough for me to know who you are. But I don't think that's what significance really is. It's a much more granular thing than that. It's about the impact that you have on the people around you. And that can be significance with your family, with your community, with your book club. I don't know what it is, but it's about making a meaningful, positive impact on the people around you. Um, Whoever they are, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's a handful of people. It's not about the number of people who can recite facts about your life 10 years after you died, right? Oh, I totally agree. So I think a good example is this comedian that she references in the clip here, right? She talks about this guy named Mort Saul. So a lot of the comedians that are referenced in this show are, were actual people. Mort Saul was one of them. He apparently was a very successful comedian, um, you know, before the the time that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was set, um, like in the 50s. He lived to age 94. He was a successful comedian for like a really long time. He's got a lengthy Wikipedia page about <laughs> him. Um, but I have absolutely no idea who that is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a guy? It's a guy. Okay. Yep. Same name as my grandfather, so his name stuck out to me. Um, but yeah, other than that, like I have no clue who this dude is, no connection with him whatsoever. Um, you can still watch some of his stuff on YouTube. I watched a short video of him. He's a funny guy. I recommend it. Um, but I mean, his name means absolutely nothing to us. I'm guessing, unless you're like a real comedy buff, his name didn't mean anything to you when you watched this show or when you heard that clip either. But would we say that he's like no longer significant or vice versa, that he was significant just because he was famous at that time. I think the point here is that fame fades, even for people that we think of as like hugely famous, you know, these names that just echo throughout history, like Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, right? Like these names that people have known for hundreds of years and probably will know for hundreds of years. 
do we care really? Like we know their names, but we don't have any kind of like personal connection to them. So I think fame is such a fleeting thing, no matter how big you get in life, eventually you're going to pass away and eventually no one will remember. Jerry Seinfeld has a net worth of $950 million. Probably a huge percentage of people know his name on planet earth today, but in a hundred years, nope, probably nobody's going to remember that there was a TV show called Seinfeld, right? So yeah, I think the best we can do in this life is just try to make an impact on people around us, animals around us, as I have a dog sleeping at my feet right now, um, while we're here and not worry about, you know, any kind of fame or fortune because all of that is just gone in the blink of an eye. Well, and Susie says she doesn't want to be insignificant. And I don't think what she genuinely means is that she doesn't, she doesn't want to have just this job at a bar that we can't even characterize. Um, <laughs> but the way that she develops some significance over the course of the series, of course, is the relationship she has with Midge and the way that she helps her. It's not about building her fame or building her comedy career, but it's about being her friend, right? It's about being someone that she can rely on to help her accomplish her own goals and do what she wants to do. And, and just the way that we define significance is often a bit misguided. It's really about touching the people around you. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the best anybody can do in this short time we have. Agreed. Yeah. So hopefully that'll inspire you to go have a nice week and feel significant in whatever way that means to you. Okay. Well, listen, Carla, tonight uh, I'm going to do my best not to wake up in the middle of the night and accidentally see you with whatever crazy (laughs) thing you have going on. And wait till you're perfectly uh, ready to go in the morning. I mean, I would appreciate that because it's, you know, this is so lovely and put together (laughs) right now with all of the pounds of makeup and, you know, the hours and hours that I spent on this ponytail that you see. There's a lot that went into this. So, yeah, here's to hoping you don't ever see the ogre that comes out (laughs) in the middle of the night because, yeah, you know, got to cover that. Got to cover that right on up. Well, there are a lot of lessons that I learned from this show. That's definitely (laughs) one of them. All right, guys. Well, go forth. Talk to your spouses about whether you like your jobs or not. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much. Take care.